left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. Left Field Investors is opening the BEC with Passive Investing Mastery, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate LP investors. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in left field this year, imagine them both back to back. The best ever conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing mastery includes admission to the entire best ever conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th, where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then immerse yourself in the full best ever conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing Mastery presented by Left Field Investors at the BEC. Are you looking for a way to invest at a lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, left field investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K-1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out. Accredited investors, listen up. Are you looking to invest in a time-tested asset class with an experienced operator? Then GSP REI is here for you. GSP REI is a vertically integrated real estate investment company specializing in single-family affordable and workforce rental housing. Through their in-house construction and property management, GSP REI has been able to consistently generate high yields for their investors. Whether you're looking for predictable monthly income or long-term growth, GSP REI has fund offerings to fit your passive investing needs. To learn more about GSP REI and explore their fund offerings, visit their website at gsprei.com. That's gsprei.com. Cashflow in real estate allows you to be able to weather storms. It allows you to pick when you want to sell. You know, if you talk to people, you always want to sell when you don't need to, and you always want to buy when other people need to sell, right? Something like that. So it's something that with cash flow in real estate, you can really pick where you're going. Having, you know, having the long-term debt on those properties too made it very easy. I paid more on some of those commercial properties to have longer-term debt. And that was actually a very smart thing because for years afterwards, I wouldn't be able to refinance them. So having your debt, having long-term debt, having cash flow in real estate, I mean, these are all things that really minimize any type of chance of losing money. I mean, those two things are taken care of. I mean, it's really difficult if you know anything about managing property to, to lose money on your properties. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Paul Shannon from Red Hawk Real Estate, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast.
I'm really excited today to have Charles Carrillo with us. He is the managing partner of Harborside Partners, a real estate syndication firm. He's been actively investing in multifamily and commercial real estate since 2006. Since that time, he's invested over $200 million worth of investment real estate. Charles is also the host of the Global Investors Podcast, where he interviews professionals about investing in U.S. real estate, which we just did. So I'm really pleased now to have you on our podcast. So Charles, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Jim. Yeah, it's great. So I'd like to hear your journey. That's the way we always start here. So how did you get into real estate? How did you become an operator? How did you become a passive investor? Just just give give us the full the full rundown. Yeah, so I started. Uh, I'm from um, I'm from Connecticut, um, from a small town there. My my dad started investing in multifamily actually in 1984, and um, a few months after I was born, and um, it was something that he bought a lot of D and C class property. Let's say mainly D class properties. Trying to be nicer for my dad there, but they were tough properties, right? And uh, it was back in the 80s, so you like sign over properties, bought money with no money down. Uh, there wasn't like do on sale clauses, any of that type of stuff back then. So it was a very interesting time um, for, for investment real estate. And um, so I grew up kind of going to his properties uh, through elementary school, middle school, and he started selling them off in like the late 90s. But it was um, up to one point, it was probably like 100 units with one of his partners, no syndications. He never, he never syndicated any of his properties. He invested passively in syndications outside of real estate, but he never uh, passed, he never like had passive investors. And um, when, you know, one thing I saw towards the end of his investing career is that he started buying better properties in better areas. And um, it was something that he kind of instilled on me when I started buying properties. And I bought my first one after graduating college in 2006. Um, kind of not the best time ever to buy a property. And now we call it a house hack. But back then it was really just buying a multifamily property, living in one, renting out the other two, which I did. And um Kind of got over my head on the first one a little bit, but it worked out well. And then I bought a second one in the end of 08, another great time to be investing. And uh, that time, that was a much better property. It was, um, I bought a property that had, was in, was like only a couple blocks away, but it was a much better property. Um, I had very long-term tenants in that property. I sold it with a whole bunch of other properties in a portfolio in 2022, but um, it was a, it was an experience and that was like the first kind of investment property that I had and then ventured into, um, in 2009, ventured into getting into small commercial mixed use properties. And, um, my first one was a, was a, I mean, full renovation. It took a hundred days of a lot of work, a lot of contractors to get that thing from completely vacant to hundred percent occupied and, um, started, the, started that process. I self-managed all my properties from 06 to 2012. In 2012, I moved to Florida, uh, put in professional third party management. And since being down in Florida, really started to buy larger apartment buildings, um, with my brother. And, uh, starting in 2018, we started working with syndications. And, uh, so we've been doing that, buying larger apartment buildings here in the Southeast. That, that's great. Great story. And it's interesting. Your, your dad was, was an operator. So that, that kind of is a natural, uh, natural fit, I guess, for you. But can you, you mentioned one, but can you talk about what you learned from watching your dad, especially on those D class properties? I mean, I think one, one thing you must have learned <laughs> is I don't want to do D class properties, <laughs> but can you talk about some of the things you, you learned just from, from watching and, and watching him? And also did, did you work in his business at all? 
I never worked for my dad. My brother did for a couple of years. He was four years older than me. He worked for a couple of years after college with my dad. I never did. I was running a, like a small online business. And um, my dad was kind of phasing out by the time I was getting out of it and uh, getting out of college. And he was kind of getting into smaller multifamily rentals in better areas. And because um, my dad had self-managed all his properties, um, all those D-class properties, self-managed, he put together a team. What's important about D-class properties or dealing with that, number one, is that um, anything with C and D-class, every month is a new, every rental collection period with lower C-class and D properties is a new negotiation. People are paying late. Um, you're getting partial payments. Um, I always laugh when I moved into like my wife and I, we moved into like a like an A minus apartment or A apartment, like many after we got married, and uh, they would only accept um, full rent. And I was laughed to myself because in D class, if you had a hundred dollars, I'm showing up at your house. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> right. And I'm writing you, you know. And back then, it was like writing the carbon copy remote. He had like you know the binder with the carbon copies, spiral bound, going, and he would. His, his like, uh, it was all cash and his, um, his supers would pick up rent sometimes, but sometimes they didn't. And I would follow behind him as we went apartment to apartment into every apartment, sat at the kitchen table. He'd speak to every tenant, um, very cordial and collect money from them, write a receipt and leave. And he was very good at dealing with people. Um, to be very good with, um, with keeping expenses low and in those type of properties. And I would always ask him, he's like, no, nah, you can't even, he's, he's like, every time we'd go to the, it's like his ongoing thing. Every time you go to like, um, supply houses or talk to contracting, he goes, not the Taj Mahal. It's not the Taj Mahal. It's not the Taj Mahal. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was like his, his kind of mantra going through. So it's, it's something that when you start getting to better properties, you got to start like, you know, you do different renovations and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But it was, it was a very interesting time of learning the inside of the business, um, of how you have to, you know, you've got many different things. You've got, you know, you got to keep the property, everything running fine on the property. And then you have this other thing, which is your time, your clients, your tenants, and every, both of them have to kind of work to keep the business going. You know what I mean? And um, it's just one of those things is you're trying to find good, you know, good tenants. And then, you know, you're trying to get rid of bad tenants out of properties. Um, I think as he kind of, you know, as he got a little bit more experience. He had a much more formal, I guess at that point it was a one page like lease, but it was, you know, you had a, it was more of a formal underwriting process for tenants that were coming in before. I think he didn't really deal with it that much and you have a lot more problems. And these are things that you start doing, you start taking larger deposits and stuff like that. And it was able to, when he sold them, he was able to have their much better shape than when he purchased them. So, but um, it's a very, very tough, uh, just, just don't do it. Never don't invest in a D-class property. There's people that make money in it. There's people that make money in every asset class, right? But it's just something that you can't you can't bring that to a third-party manager. They're not going to take it, or they shouldn't, because like it's just a mess. You have to have your own management team, and you just have to deal with just craziness all the time. Uh, the times that we've had to go on police station, my dad looked through like mugshot books, the times that You'd be sweeping the hallway and find like needles there. I mean, it was just like a whole, it was, just, it's nothing that you want to be part of, but um, it's definitely teaches you how to uh, manage those properties. Yeah. And or it also teaches you how to uh, avoid managing those properties by buying <laughs> different types of properties, which that in itself is a good lesson. So, you know, early on, you also mentioned, you know, some of your first investments were mixed use. Can you talk about what that is and and why did you do mixed use instead of staying kind of focused on uh, on single family or multifamily homes? 
Yeah. So uh, I never did a single family rental. I, my smallest uh, multifamilies or, or rentals for residential were uh, three families. And uh, I just found it that every time I do numbers on a duplex, it just wouldn't cash flow. And at least with a three family, I could have two of those three people paying and I could like break even. You know what I mean? It could it, it would soften the blow when you had a vacancy. You know, I don't think I could be writing big checks out uh, at that time in my in my early 20s to the banks for mortgage payments if no one was paying. You know what I mean? So uh, that's why I've always avoided anything smaller than three units when I'm when I'm buying stuff. But uh, mixed use properties, what they were was that, um, and anybody goes into like a city center, you'll see them. And it's really just that this one was a, had a small office on the first floor, and then it had four multifamily units around it. So in the eyes of the bank, it was, you know, because they asked about the percentage of square footage going to multifamily versus retail back uh, when I bought these properties many, many years ago, back during the recession, uh, great financial. And uh, it was, it was like, you know, it, it was like 90 something percent was was residential and only like 10 percent was um, mix, was mixed was a uh, office or retail. And um, you just got the deals back then. There was no financing for these properties. So if you could put together the cash to buy them, you could buy them. I mean, I bought this property. It was like 27 cents or something on the dollar from what it sold two, two years earlier in 07. Um, because there was no money. The banks were only lending back there when people were flipping. If you were, you know, if you saw something that come came up, and this thing was like sitting on the MLS for like four or five months. Um, I went in like 30% less than what they asked for. And they literally like asked me for best and final and they took it. And I went up like 1% and there were 2% they like took the, took it. So it was just like, um, it was just one of those things that, uh, that you, cause you, you can't, no one would flip those. Not that there wasn't money to buy those and no one want the, these flippers wanted to buy stuff that could get obviously whole part of a flipping is to find something that can get financed on the other side, right? And if they can't get financed, the whole thing falls apart. So that means that they're only looking at one to 40 unit properties that could get FHA, you know what I mean? First time home buyers or somebody could come in there with a residential loan and something government backed. But banks were, I mean, I'll tell you when I, I, my, my family had a banking relationship with a local bank and um, I finished this property, beautiful cash out of my pocket for everything. I didn't have one investor. And when I was done with the property, I went and was trying to get like a line on it so I could do some flipping of houses or do another project. And they literally would, they literally were going to offer me, I think it was like, I wouldn't say 10%. It was like probably 15% loan to cost of what I actually paid for it and what I did to it. And they were only giving me like, they're like, no. And they had all these stipulations too. This, you know, I had like a company in Florida at the time I was living in Connecticut. And they're like, oh, this one has to be moved to Connecticut, this has to be done this, this has to be done this. And you're like, man, there's an asset here. I just showed you all the receipts, like nothing you can see from before and after. I got pictures of the whole thing. Like, you know, I did the work. It's not like some, you know what I mean? You guys are walking, right. walked the properties. They were like on it. They were telling me how good the construction was of like all these porches I did over. And um, they wouldn't buy it. And that's, that's the problem is that there's no money there on the way out. And that was for someone that had, had great financials that year, all this type of stuff. And uh, they wouldn't loan to you. And that was just one of the things. That's where you're getting the deals is when the debt is all when there's no money, you know what I mean, from banks. Yeah, and so how has that changed? I mean, obviously it has, especially with, um, you know, there's easy money for a number of years, and mm -hmm. I'm sure you had success with that. So how did you how did you deal with the with the good times? And then now that interest rates have gone up so far so fast, how are you dealing with that? Just being a little bit more conservative. I mean, I've always been a conservative investor, and uh, we, I mean, we've never purchased anything um, with investors or anything that would like loan to value over 
probably the highest was maybe like 77 or 76%. Um, so I'm pretty conservative on that, always been like that. And um, it's something that um, always big on making sure properties uh, cash flow first, but also the main thing is buying better properties. Um, when you're buying, when you're buying less than ideal properties, it's just, it, no one wants to finance them. You're not going to get great financing. They don't have liquidity. I mean, not that this is liquid at all, but there's even less liquidity with bad properties. You know what I mean? Like my dad's properties, no one wants to buy that stuff back in the day. I mean, that was just, it's, they had to send us, they had to sign it over to people without like a down payment. You know what I mean? That's how bad it was. Today, if you have good properties or in any, you know, any part of the market cycle, if you're buying like solid B-class properties, which is what we focus on now, um, you know, that are built in the last 30 or 40 years, I mean, these properties are always going to have buyers. Um, they're always going to be desirable areas. And um, maybe you're not going to get the price you did, you know, years back when it was really hot and you're, if you're in a pullback now, but you're still going to have people that want to buy it for a reasonable price. You know what I mean? And um, that's one thing you don't get when you're buying in subpar areas. You know, you're buying in areas that aren't growing. People don't really want to buy there. You know what I mean? It's difficult. Um, however, um, it's it's one of those things that if you're if you're investing in areas that are growing, um, you know, uh, population, jobs uh, with a decrease in crime, so the area is improving. Um, these are areas that are going to stand out, and these are where investors are going to want to put their money, even if they're paying a little more for it, and even in a pullback, they're still going to want to invest in it. And so how have you, I mean, have you changed the structure of the debt in the last couple of years because of higher interest rates? Are you doing fixed? Are you doing adjustable? You know, what, or has it changed at all? Lower LTVs? Um, I think what we've been doing, the main thing is that, uh, oh, since, since the beginning of getting involved with syndications, we've started raising money for the majority of all the repairs up front. And that's something that, not a mistake we made in our first one, we did really well, we, we outdid our, uh, our our estimates, but it was something that it was, um, we started not having to deal with the banks with having the draws and getting money back with a lot of the renovations, which has always been a headache. And so what we started doing is raising all of it up front or raising the majority of it up front so that it wouldn't um, kind of hamper any of our renovations that we could start doing all of it right away because it's always a... When you're, when you're doing draws with banks or any type of lenders, I mean, it's, it's kind of a long process because something has to be done, then it has to be checked off, then you have to do this, and then you can continue on. Whereas if you have the money in cash and you're going through and it's in your bank account, now you can have multiple contractors, multiple projects going on at the property. And the faster you can get that through that initial stabilization period, that's the faster, the, the uh, more value is going to be made and uh, higher rents you can get from tenants sooner. But what we've done is that with our, um, the majority of our thing is all fixed. The majority of all of our debt is is fixed and uh, five years usually to 10 years. And uh, we have one deal with floating rate that we'd have a rate cap on. Um, and uh, it's not a problem. It's, it's actually our best performing asset. So we're very lucky because we bought, it was a good pro property in, in greater Atlanta. And we purchased it really right before rates started going up and had a two-year rate uh, cap on it. But um, we can refinance that property right now. Um, we're just, we're trying to refinance out some of our preferred equity. So we've been waiting to refinance out, which we'll probably do at the end of this year. Um, but we won't have an issue there and we're very lucky. But that's the key about buying in, in good areas. You know what I mean? We're able to maintain a very high occupancy while it's 157 units, so we're able to uh, renovate one or two units a month. We're not pushed to do too many. And we slowed that down once we saw, you know, kind of the hiccups in the banking section, banking and um, everything over the last year. Self-storage has been one of the fastest growing real estate sectors for four decades straight. With inflation on the rise, it may be the hedge you're looking for. 
Spartan Investment Group identifies low-risk, value-add investment opportunities in commercial real estate. Their private debt and equity opportunities offer stable monthly payments and predictable returns. And since they put every investment through a 700-plus point due diligence checklist, you can invest with confidence. To learn more, visit spartan-investors.com. Hi, this is Zach Hapenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise 48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you. So I want to kind of pivot a little bit now and, and and talk about real estate investing generally. So, you know, you you were talking about cash flow. So what makes cash flowing real estate so so powerful and, and desirable? Cash flow in real estate was one of the things which is what differs it from why I why I stopped and why I dislike doing flipping of housing uh, houses. It's just because if you're investing in the properties that are cash flowing, so you're able to cover all your expenses, your debt service, everything, and still make money, um, it allows you to weather many storms. And I, I mean, I didn't know in my early 20s about going through the fight. It just happened. You know what I mean? I'd start being a landlord in the end of 06. And it never, nothing ever looked as bad. You know what I mean? And then when you look back on it, you're like, oh my God, like this is, this was terrible. And you look back at all these different signs. But the thing is, people always ask me, it's like, no, I had cash flow in real estate. And other people didn't have that. And they got into trouble trying to flip stuff, trying to sell to another, another person at the end afterwards. And that all ended and people got stuck, you know, without a seat. So cash flow in real estate allows you to be able to weather storms. It allows you to pick when you want to sell. Um, you know, if you talk to people, you always want to sell um, when you don't need to, and you always want to buy when other people need to sell, right? Something like that. So it's something that with cash flow in real estate, you can really pick where you're going. Um, having, you know, having the long-term debt on those properties too made it very easy. I paid more on some of those commercial properties to have longer-term debt. And that was actually a very smart thing because for years afterwards, I wouldn't be able to refinance them. So having your debt, um, having long-term debt, having cash flow in real estate, I mean, these are all things that really minimize any type of of chance of losing money. I mean, those two things are taken care of. I mean, it's really difficult if you know anything about managing property to to lose money on your properties. And so coupled with that, then there there's still risk, right? When you invest in real estate, there's risk whenever you invest in anything. That's why there's a return, right? Um but how do you mitigate the risk? How do you reduce the risk? I guess I'm talking more of a mm-hmm. as a passive investor. Yeah. What can I do to mitigate the risk that's always there? I still want the high returns. I'd like the high returns and low risk, right? I mean, who who wouldn't? But how how do I mitigate that risk? Uh, it's it's going to be similar to you being an active investor. So going to deals where you're having a, a lower loan to value. I mean, don't go into deals with people that are financing, you know, 85% loan to value where people are financing every penny into renovation. These are all like red flags. Um, I want to go into deals where maybe they're financing their loan to values in um, low 70s or the 60s. Um, 
and I want to see that they're putting up um, money's being raised for a lot or most or all of the renovations. And that's showing me that they have this money to float. If there's any type of issues, I want to see what kind of reserves they're putting up for operations afterwards. I mean, how many months of um, of expenses are they putting in the bank? And uh, for this, um, that way shows you that, you know, if you've, you're investing passively into a property that's got uh, 20 roofs and they think that only 10 need to be done and they realize that, you know, 11 or 12 need to be done, where's that money coming from? Is it coming from uh, a capital call or is it coming from your reserves that you put aside for this for this reason? Um, and you got to ask these, make sure that you're investing with strong. Uh, it really comes down to the sponsor. The, the wealthier the people I've dealt with, the more that they bet on the jockey, really, and make sure that they are, um, that person's able to weather the storm, right? So they have some sort of track record, they have access to some sort of finances outside of it. Um, because if, uh, you know, $100,000 needs to be put in or something like this, they're not going to go out to investors, they're going to take that other own money, put it into the deal as like a, you know, 0% or low interest loan, whatever it might be, and, um, you know, get that done. And that's what you that's what you want to see, you know what I mean? And so, um, Mitigating risk is really uh, dealing with operators that know what they're doing and then looking at projects where there is a proven system. Um, the proven systems number, kind of number one, is really making sure that they have, um, hey, we have a property. What I want to hear is they have a property that's nearby or in that market um, where they have boots on the ground. They have a management company that's already there. I mean, people can self-manage in-house. It doesn't really matter to me. It's really, um, if this is your seventh property in a market and you have a third-party property manager, and they've done the other six for you, I know that when I put my money into this, the chances of losing that are very low, right? Because I'm like plugging into what they've already set up. The problem happens is that it's their first deal in a new market, and the chances of that all working out smoothly is not good. I want to go into a place where they like they know the market inside and out. Hey, we have a 1,000 units within like a 20-minute drive of this property. Hey, we have this all set up. We're just like plugging this new property into it. We have the contractors already set up. And when I've done that, I've been very happy with results. And there's never like reports that come out and be like, oh, wow, you know, we had to fire two of these. We had to change management. I've never had those issues because if you just – People are, they know what they're doing. And if you're dealing with those people that know what they're doing on the ground and you're plugging into what they've built, that's when you're going to be successful. And, and you mentioned, you know, you want to know that the operator dealing with knows what they're doing and that they have a system. So as a passive investor, as a limited partner investor, you know, this, this goes into, I guess, vetting the sponsor a little bit, but how do I know that they know what they're doing? What questions do I ask so I can confirm that, okay, yep, they know what they're doing? And what questions do I ask to make sure that they have a system that, that works? I would want to see what they have in the market. I mean, if they're going into a, I mean, if, uh, if they're in a specific market and they say, you know, this is going to be, um, ask them if they don't, they should, this is a huge selling point. And this is the whole thing that's like the narrative of the deal and not in the underwriting. Because all these things we're talking about we haven't talked anything about underwriting. It's all about really what's happening that's not that's not written in, in the spreadsheet. And it's really what, you know, what is your experience in this market? What does your team look like? I mean, how are those other projects operating? Um, that's really kind of shows me the system. And if it shows me that they, the main, it's like the property manager, I keep on bringing this up, but the property manager is such a huge thing um, because they're actually the ones that are going to deal with the tenants. And they're actually the ones that are going to have the most contact with people at the property and with the property. And they're going to be the first line of defense if anything happens. So they want to, they're going to help retain, you know, good management will help you retain uh, uh, tenants and will help you bring in new tenants as well. 
And the whole goal with multifamily is really try to keep your tenants staying there for two, three years. If you can keep your tenants staying there for 24, 36 months, your bottom line without doing anything else, without increasing rents or anything like this, is going to increase dramatically because you don't have to do any of that make ready. I don't have to pay a leasing agent. I don't have to do, you know, all this cost of true vacancy. Uh, you know, you're not obviously renting it out during the vacancy. You have to make it new. I got to pay someone a bonus for renting it. Um, you know, a thousand dollar apartment can end up costing three thousand dollars, right? In lost revenue um, with everything, and people don't really see that. They also don't see how fast it is for flipping over those units. So I really want to like dig in and ask questions about how the process has been working on other properties, and kind of if they have answers to how long does it take you to flip over units um, when you're doing these renovations? How many are they going to do per month? Um, what happens if um, you know you want to do? five units per month, what happens if there's, you know, nine vacancies, you know, how do you re-sign those other people? And are, you know, that's, these are kind of questions I want to see, because if you're not renovating all of them, I want to see those other ones rented out. Not that they have to be like rents jacked up high, but like, you know, if they're 10% under, maybe we get it like, you know, four or 5% higher, sign them for a year or maybe six months. You know what I mean? Um, do we try to sell those people on the new units over here that have been renovated instead of just saying, Oh, you know, your rent's going up or you can stay or you can leave. And um, these are these are things, too. And then also it's um, how, how else are they going to increase the NOI without raising rents? So when your new management comes in there, how are we going to be saving? How how are we going to be able to um, lower fees across the property? So new vendors like I know we've wanted one property years back in Tampa. And just by changing out like our trash vendor, we were able to cut expenses in half. That's how overpriced it was. And the people were just your mom and pop. They had made all this money in the property already over years. And it was like, you know, a small investor group. They didn't have to, they didn't care about the extra $1,500 or whatever it was a month, right? But that goes right to the bottom line. And I don't have to raise anybody's rents. So we were talking both about the asset manager and the property manager here. So typically when you're vetting a sponsor or an operator, you're talking to the the asset manager, right? That's that's the sponsor. So- how do you vet the property manager? Because we both talked about this on your podcast yeah. and now that that's you know probably one of the most important things to do. So how do I do I ask the asset manager all the questions about the property manager or do I ask to get in touch with the property manager? And for both or either, what questions would I ask if I did get in front of the property manager? I've never in a past investment spoken to the property manager, but it should be something that's, market it in their deal. And I've all, I've definitely looked into their company and see exactly where they have assets. And they usually will mention, uh, if they didn't mention on their website or something like this, you can reach out to them and get a list of addresses. Because I've done it before when vetting property managers uh, being active as well. And I've done it passively. I've never gotten on a call or in front of them, like you were saying. But um, I've dropped the emails to them and kind of seeing exactly where they're managing properties. And then, hey, you're taking over an asset here. Do you guys have ones in the area? And I think people that manage properties, the closest to where I'm buying is what I want. And I, I, I know people might have, they say, oh, you don't want anything because they're going to, if they have properties near them, you don't want your property manager to have properties near you because they're going to push their properties. And I don't believe in any of that. I'd rather have my property manager driving by my property every day or someone in their office. You know what I mean? And you know exactly what's going on. Not like I'm, you know, some, some property out of their way because they're not going to go there. You know what I mean? And they don't know the rents in the market. So if I tell them, hey, rents are $900 here a month, we think we're going to get 10 50 or uh and they're gonna say no no that's that's way too high you're probably gonna get 975 or something like this they're gonna be the first ones to tell you because they're renting apartments every day in that market so finding out exactly where they're located and how big their footprint is if they look like 
not as professional of a property manager, then I would start asking questions to the asset manager. But you can find a lot of that just by researching online and seeing where their current assets are. And uh, if you're local, you can drive those assets too. I mean, that's how I've uh, pointed out a lot of property managers before is you can drive uh, what assets they're already doing. Like, do I want my property to look like this? You know, that's how they manage it. Interesting. And then um, you're a passive investor as well as an, as an operator. So why are you investing passively in other people's deals? And are you in the same asset class or is it is it more of a focus outside of multifamily? Can you just talk about, you know, your LP experience and, and why you're doing it and, and where? Uh, so I like to have diversification into other other deals and other other markets. I mean, we focus in uh, like three markets here in the southeast and uh, where we have operating partners on the ground as our general partner deals as sponsors. And I like getting broader, you know, broader diversification to new markets. Um, I also like investing into different asset classes. I mean, my bread and butter of what I've done for almost 20 years has been in multifamily. Um, I love investing into other asset classes, whether it's self-storage, whether it's triple net. Um, and they all have, you know, every asset class has pros and cons. And it's great to be able to diversify into other other classes of properties. And then I also invest outside of real estate as well. Um, I know that you're an investor in ATMs. It's something I invested into for many years. I still do. And um, you know, investing. I also do some passive investing into like angel investments, similar to having not directly, but working with a sponsor um, that you're investing with that's making the investment. So um, a different asset class, something definitely I'm not a professional on. So it's something that you're able to, instead of like going down all these routes of being active in all these different things, I've kind of like, you know, your area, I know my buy box of what I really like to buy, the areas I like buying in, and then really kind of spreading my my passive investing dollars other places. And um, um, you know, that's just one thing for myself. Yeah, I, I think that's that's makes sense, right? We talk all the time at Left Field Investors about the importance of diversifying by sponsor, asset class and market, and maybe even some other things, debt structures, things like that. So it's always interesting to, to talk to an operator and find out, you know, okay, where, where are you putting your investable dollars? Are you, you know, are you putting it all back into your business, which, okay, or are you diversifying, which I think, you know, is probably the more financially sound move, but so, some operators put it all on their own stuff because they, they believe that they're, they're going to have the best results. But me, if it was me, I like the diversification. So I, I appreciate you clarifying that. Um, so on, on your podcast, when we spoke, the uh, Global Investors Podcast, we talked about operators stopping distributions and, and what we thought mm -hmm. of that. So if listeners want to hear that, they can jump over to your podcast. But what I want to talk about is capital calls. What do you think of operators who make a capital call? Is it disqualifying for investing in them in the future? Are there exceptions? And then I just kind of want to dig into the the appearance of what, what does it mean when someone does a capital call for the future of the, that investment and your investing future with them? Yeah, that's a great question because as I was speaking to a syndication attorney, they're telling me about half their business now is dealing with uh, dealing with syndicators that are having capital calls or having cash issues uh, one way or another. So that is a definitely a big topic right now. But uh, I've never done a capital call. I've never been on any part of it where I've had to do it as a passive investor. Uh, well, I've done it as a passive investor into angel investors because that's how you do funds. You know what I mean? They'll do it in different different polls. But like unexpected capital calls, I've never we've never done it as syndicators, or I've never done it as a passive investor in real estate. And um, it's a tough question because you, I, I really want to figure out why they're doing it and what the reasoning is for it, and what resources 
See, one of the things is when they have these rescue capital lenders, and this is kind of like often a touch of a tangent here, um, when they're looking at a deal and they want to, they're going to bring a rescue lender in because they don't want to do a capital call or they're doing a capital call and they're bringing a rescue lender in to assist them with a, a deal that's going south. Um, that rescue lender wants to see exactly why that went wrong um, and also um, how much of their cash that they're putting back into the deal alongside this rescue investor. And the property has to be at a certain level. So if you have like a you know 70s built property or 60s built property, you're probably not going to be having, unless it's like in you know Boston or New York or something, you're probably not going to have a rescue lender bringing money and putting it alongside you, whether if it's a 90s or 80s built or in the 2000s built property. So that's how important the property type is that you're investing into. But I kind of want to ask those same questions. You know, what was the issue here? And then how much money of your own money are you putting in during this process? And, um, you know, when I've invested passively before, I was told, you know, I'd, I'd see in reports or I talk to syndicators and sometimes it's told during it, but I think it was twice that happened to me. And one time they never told me until afterwards that they put in like $100,000 of their own money to float stuff between, you know, between the, the draws and the lender and all this type of stuff. And that's great. That's perfect. That's exactly how it should be. That's why you're investing with a syndicator that has some sort of ability to get assets, pull a portfolio loan from whatever they have um, and, and do it. And so, I'd really want to know, number one, why it's happening. Number two, how much are they putting in? Because that shows me how strong they are about it. Because if you're going to capital call, I want it to be like the last thing, you know what I mean, that they're that they're they're bringing up to. So like, listen, I've exhausted. I've got money here. I've got money here. I've got money there. This is what it is. We can do this or we can bring in the rescue lender. And we're saying to do the capital call so we can kind of don't dilute out all of our, our shares. And um, so would it depending on what the answer to that would be, would be depending on if I invest with them in the future. But um, I don't know. I mean, if people didn't think interest rates were going to go up anytime soon, I, I mean, we they did go up a lot faster than we thought, obviously. But I mean, if you were just getting like really short-term debt and you didn't have rate caps or anything like that, I mean, that was just very foolish and they probably wouldn't get another investment from me. Right. And then when you, you mentioned a little bit about it, um, you'd make sure that they're putting money in too. But how, how should an LP decide if they will participate in that capital call or not? Obviously, one of the biggest questions is, hey, operator, how much are you putting in, right? Yeah. But do you re-underrate the deal and ask for totally new financials and, and start from scratch? Or are you just kind of, uh, I mean, is there other, some other way to analyze it? I would want to speak to the investors. That's when I'm going to start. If, if we're going to this extent, I want to be talking and I'd probably try to, hey, give me all the investors' information. Um, I would request that and I would start trying to reach out to other investors and see exactly, hey, like, what are we going to do? What are other people doing? Are people putting in there? Why aren't we putting it in there? And um, and any operator that wants to really save the deal would provide that information because I want to talk to other investors in the deal because if you're just like one-on-one and, hey, everybody else is doing this, well, how do I know? You know, at this point, you've kind of lost right. all of your <laughs> everything with privacy. Yeah, credibility, privacy. Like, listen, if we're going to do this. I'm going to think about it. I want to talk to other people of why they're going to do it. And um, I'd make my decision at that point. I mean, I just, um, I, I, you know, the main thing is really like, um, how is it going to change? So after you get the money, you know, like I'm paying off your credit cards, let's just say, um, what happened, what's the next thing you're going to do so you don't get back into credit card debt, you know, kind of a thing. So like, what is the plan that you have that we're not going to get to this again? I'm changing a property manager, you know, someone stole money from it, you know, we were the blah, 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 or I'm moving into the property. These are all things that are going to make you, you know, if you have an operator that's moving into the property or like really taking drastic steps to save the deal, these are things where I'm going to put money behind them. If they're just like, you know, throwing stuff at the wall and hoping that it sticks, that's, you know what I mean? 
you're, yeah. you're, you probably won't have it. And then you also want to talk to your accountant and see exactly like taxes because like what happens? Is this deductible? If it's not deductible, what happens if I like put this money in just to get, try to get all my money back out? I mean, is that smart? So there's a lot of different things up in the air that you have to, you have to talk to other investors. Um, I kind of really want to know exactly what my tax liability too would be if there, if this all goes down. Do I aim it back or do I have to like recapture everything that got depreciated too? So um, tons of questions there, but yeah. you know, how they handle it would really tell you. I wouldn't mark someone a hundred percent off. It depends on how they handled it. Someone that handled that right. situation very professionally and really was striving to make sure the deal worked or that people got their money back, I probably would invest with them again. That's a high level of integrity. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And then, you know, most people when they're looking at operators and they're evaluating them, one of the things, I got to have someone who has experience, right? It's one of the most important factors that people look at when you're um, vetting an operator. But now many of those experienced operators are in trouble, right? They've had capital calls or there's pausing distributions or something. So is experience of the operator still a valid metric to evaluate or do you need to dig deeper? Oh, that's not, these are great questions. Um, I would say that um, the syndicator experience can go two ways because, um, like, for us, we've been syndicating, you know, six, six plus years, seven years, something like this. Um, but it goes back much further. So I really put more emphasis on kind of what they did before they start taking money from passive investors. So um, and then how far that goes back. If it goes back pre to, you know, pre 2009 or something like this and they made it through or something happened, that's a lot of experience. You know what I mean? And if they just start taking money like last year, that's fine. I mean, there's one extra piece that they're adding on to they have the property. It's a larger property, still the same fundamentals. And then others adding in the, the client portion of it, right? The investor portion. Um, but I want to know kind of what their experience is if, um, because there's a lot of people that started, if you started a syndication business in 2013, I mean, this is your first time of having any type of hiccup. I mean, you literally had seven years of just eight years of just printing money. I mean, anything you bought could turn to gold. I mean, you know, and like terrible properties you could have made money on. So that doesn't really tell me too much if I had, you know, so it's really just their, their experience as an operator on any type of, you know, kind of rental real estate. Let's just talk, if we're talking multifamily here, any type of multifamily that they've owned, um, how far back that goes. And, um, and then also, you know, um, kind of like commercial multifamily too, because it's completely different loan structures. You know what I mean? I didn't really have too many issues because the majority of my loans going through Grand Financial were all, were all really fixed. And then even on the commercial loans, I had really fixed loans and I was paying, 75 basis points on one of them higher than I should have been paying and stuff like this because I wanted a much more long-term loan. So people that made it through in those areas, they did things that um, were just more conservative and like, how are they acting towards that? So it's it's difficult with new syndicators because there's some people that have grown really large in the last few years, but this is like their first really chance to try into like, uh, you know, figuring out exactly if they're good operators or not because you don't really know. I mean, until it all comes apart, right? Yeah, or or it comes and is successful, right? We won't yeah. know for sure for three, four, five, ten years, depending on yeah. on. And that's that's one of the biggest challenges of this. Um, but th this has been great. What the the one of the last questions I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? You cannot say the Global Investors Podcast. That's your podcast, and it'll already be in the show notes. So, what what's another podcast you like? 
other than your podcast, um, I love um, Macro Voices. I think that's a great podcast. It's for institutional and family offices. It's very much based around um, the stock markets and commodities and stuff like that. But uh, it's about an hour a week, hour and a half a week. And um, it goes into a lot of things about all things in the economy. And I think it's a great thing for people to kind of uh, – any type of anybody in investing, no matter what it is, that they, you know, you can follow a lot of great information that's coming up that's not 100% mainstream. And I kind of like that. So you're getting ideas that aren't really just everybody looks on the front page of CNBC. And that's what it is. So oh, that's great. I haven't listened to that one. So I'll definitely check it out. Um, and if listeners want to get in touch with you, learn more about you or learn more about uh, Harborside Partners, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so I'm very active on LinkedIn. So uh, Charles Crillo. And also, if you my company is HarborsidePartners.com. So if you go to HarborsidePartners.com, you can learn more about us. Uh, podcast twice weekly. One of them is a strategy one. One of them is an interview-based one, a YouTube channel. Uh, we are free guide for past investing, but there's a lot of guides online. But we do have a weekly newsletter that we put out that you can sign up for. And it's really a link-based one. It's very quick for you to go through. And if you're interested, it's not a ton of writing. It's more of a links and you can click on stuff if you're interested in and go to articles of stuff that I'm reading and that our team's reading. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. We'll put that all in the show notes, but we appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Jim. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invest on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. That was fun talking to Charles. It's interesting. You know, I, I like doing podcast swaps where I'm a guest on his and, and vice versa because uh, then we get to know each other a little bit more and, and by interviewing each other. And so check his out on uh, on the Global Investor Podcast. And uh, if you if you like this episode, you'll, you'll like that one as well. Uh, a couple of things that, that I really liked is he, he learned real estate from his dad, right? But he learned D-class. And I think one of the things he learned is don't do D-class. I learned that myself. I don't know if I had a C or a D, but it was it was a dog, uh, regardless, and not 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 in a good way. Uh, so you know he learned that lesson from his dad and saw his dad working so hard on those, and so now he's in in B B properties, which is you know presumably uh, I don't know if it's easier, but it's it's different in, in a good way, I think. And some of the other things he mentioned, cash flow first. I am a big believer in that. You know, you want to have the cash flow because then everything flows from that. And as he said, if you have the cash flow, then you're able to weather weather storms like ones we were going through right now. So if it's cash flowing, um, you know, from the gate, that that's what you that's what you're looking for. And he also said part of it, and this is totally obvious, but also people don't always do it, is you got to buy the right property. You got to invest in the right property. So you know, we're getting tons of emails, especially now when it's harder to raise capital for uh, for operators. You know, all these deals are distressed and they're great deals. And, you know, you got to make sure when you're looking at them that they actually are the right property for you and for your investing style and that they're actually quality property. So there's a couple things to look at. We talked about capital calls. We talked about pausing distributions on his podcast. On mine, we talked about capital calls. And I think it's critical, right? We we've sometimes focus just on, well, I want to make sure the operator's investing too. And we do that 
you know, for capital calls, we do that initially. Skin in the game is a big talking point. But you also need, and, and again, some of this is so obvious, but I don't always ask for it, right? You need to have a solid plan, right? You're doing a capital call. What's the reason? Is it because you didn't operate this property uh, properly? Well, then I'm out. Is it because ex external events like a pandemic or interest rates rising so quickly caused problem? Okay, that happened. So now what are you going to do with it? What is your plan? And that's uh, what Charles is really focusing on is you need to make sure before you put more money into something, you need to make sure they have a plan and the plan makes sense. And then you need to make sure that they can actually execute on the plan. So knowing what went wrong is critical to knowing if they can execute on that plan. So great stuff from Charles. Really appreciate him. That's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.